This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I work with clients to get to root cause healing, and oftentimes that starts with gut healing with a meat based elimination diet. So, today I am so, so excited to share this interview with you guys. I have always been intrigued by genetically modified foods ever since I went to UC Berkeley, and I just was questioning everything that wasn't organic. Um, and I feel like I've come full circle because I had a career in between and then I just came back to nutrition. But it was so fascinating to interview Dr. Stephanie Seneff. She is an MIT scientist and she just got intrigued by glyphosate because she had a friend that had a child with autism and they were going down rabbit holes to figure out what happened. I'll let her share the journey in our interview, but it's such a fascinating one. I hope this conversation helps you to understand that plant based foods are not only toxic because of plant toxins. In Carnivore Cures Chapter 5, I talk about all things glyphosate. The thing about plants are that whether it's organic, whether it's non GMO, or it is GMO, they are all affected in some amounts by glyphosate and other herbicides, pesticides, insecticides. Even organic plant foods use a lot of stuff. To ensure that other bugs do not kill off these plants. Sometimes, if you're really sick, it may just be better to focus on meat where you are protected by the own animal's biology that will help you be healthier than eating the most highest quality organic plant based foods. If you aren't feeling well on a paleo type of diet or a whole foods diet that includes a lot of plants, you may want to just remove the plants. Just because of the exposure to herbicides and other plant toxins and toxins that are sprayed on our crops. Listen to this discussion and you'll see a lot more of what I've been advocating for that is concerning about plant foods other than anti nutrients. Let's get right into the discussion. Hi, Dr. Stephanie Seneff. I'm so excited to have you on.、Um, I have been looking into glyphosate and GMO. For since my college years. And so I'm really excited to finally speak to an expert.、Um, for those of the people that are listening and watching that don't know you, do you mind introducing yourself?、Uh, certainly, yes. I'm Stephanie Sanif. I work at MIT. I've been at MIT all my, all my entire career as well as my education. So I have several degrees from MIT、uh, bachelor's in biology, master's, EE, and PhD degrees in computer science and electrical engineering. I spent、uh, all my life working for MIT. I'm now a senior research scientist, which is the highest rank on the research staff. You know, what got you interested in glyphosate? You know, why glyphosate? Why does it even matter? Right. Well, that was a, a long journey. And it, it began really a long time ago in, in the 19, early 1980s when my best friend at the time had a son who got a DPT shot, had a bad reaction, and was later diagnosed with severe autism. So it sort of planted a seed in my mind linking vaccines to autism, which I know is a very controversial topic. 
And um, so I was just curious about autism because of that and sort of watching it. And I saw the rates going up uh, in the 2000s, you know, 2005, 2006, 2000s, every year rates going up. And they're always saying, oh, well, we're just diagnosing it more. Don't worry about it. It's a genetic disease. And it just didn't make sense to me that rates kept going up. So I wanted to figure out what was causing the increase in autism. I thought, well, I'm a scientist. I can do correlation studies. Let me take a look at various chemicals in the environment and see if I can find something that's going up dramatically. And certainly the vaccines are a candidate and they have gone up dramatically since 1986. So I don't rule them out. And I do think they're a factor. But I didn't, after five years of looking, I didn't think the vaccines were the primary factor. I thought there was something else and I didn't know what it was. And I was frustrated. (laughs) So that was kind of the situation I was in. I knew a lot about autism at that point. I'd read many, many papers about it. Very complicated disease, lots of comorbidities, gut problems, uh, mineral deficiencies and mineral toxicities, all kinds of things. Um, so I happened to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber was giving a presentation, a two-hour presentation on glyphosate. This was 2012, in the fall of 2012. And um, I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't know what glyphosate was, but I thought, well, this looks interesting. I probably should attend this talk. And uh, I was just spellbound. I mean, his talk was so perfect because the, the things he described that glyphosate does were things that I do were factors in autism. It just fit like hand in glove. I was so impressed. And I came away from that really with an epiphany. I really felt like this is it, Uh, particularly because glyphosate is so pervasive. It's considered to be so safe that people use it in their yards with their children playing there. They don't think it's a problem. Uh, It's all over the food supply. It's in the air. It's in the water. Uh, It's the most used herbicide on the planet in the United States, uses more per person than any other country in the world. And we have very high rates of autism. So it all kind of fit together. And later on, you know, Nancy Swanson did stuff. She introduced herself to me and said, hey, I saw your paper because I'd written a paper linking glyphosate to autism just theoretically and arguing all the reasons and based on Don Huber's work and then other people's work as well. And Nancy came across our paper and sent me an email and said, you know, I'm doing some analyses and look at this. And it was basically autism matches perfectly with glyphosate. If you look at the uh, rates of autism in first grade um, in the United States, um, in the the public schools uh, versus the use of uh, glyphosate over the previous four years. That would be like the age of two to the age of six in the child's life. Um, You take those two plots and you put them on the same page and they coincide. It's like a 0.99 correlation coefficient. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely stunning. And, you know, people say, well, correlation doesn't mean causation. And then they say, well, how could, and of course, then we went on to find all kinds of other diseases. How could one chemical cause so many diseases? Uh, I refuse to give up. I mean, I just felt like I, we were onto something really huge here. And it's just, I've been like a bulldog all ever since then, just studying everything I can about glyphosate and these diseases and looking for these correlations and then explanations, finding the biological mechanism. So it's been quite a journey. It's been a, a wonderful puzzle. And I feel like I've really kind of cracked the code with that book. And um, so I'm very pleased with what I've discovered. And uh, at the same time, terrified, yes, toxic legacy, um, how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment, just published July 1st by Chelsea Green. And um, and I'm continuing to look into glyphosate uh, as we speak. Yeah, um, I, I came across one of your discussions. Um, I believe it was in front of the Congress, right? Or the Oh, yes, uh, 2016, uh, when we went to the uh, U.S. government and right. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you bring up these facts about kids, um, one in three is overweight, one in six have learning disabilities. And um, I, it was such a powerful uh, information that I read. And then I put some of the charts that you're mentioning in my actual book that I published last uh, year. And can you congratulations, talk little- by the way, <laughs> oh, thank you. And thank you. And thank you for your book, too. It's uh, wonderful. But can you talk a little bit about these illnesses and how glyphosate affects, um, you know, our children. Right. I mean, that's critical. And I think it is uh, the major, I think it's the primary factor, as I said, in a huge list of diseases um, and including things like sleep disorder. Uh, I've seen, you know, we have striking correlations. I've published papers where we show perfect correlation with sleep disorder, which is another thing that's really come become rampant lately. And it wasn't really an issue back when I was young, you know, and um, depression, um, anxiety, uh, ADHD, autism, they're all going up dramatically in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. And it's funny how we sort of get used to the new normal. I feel like people just expect that their children are going to have all these behavior issues and they're going to be 
you know, super excitable. Like they just break down crying at the, at the store because their parents won't let them buy the toy. I mean, the kids behave very differently today. They seem very nervous and anxious. And I feel like, you know, it's affecting all the children in a bad way. And of course there's obesity too. And obesity is very clear. It's quite dramatic if you look at Africa. I did write a chapter for a book on um, glyphosate. Well, it was a book on toxic chemicals in agriculture. My chapter was on glyphosate use in Africa. And I was quite surprised when I looked at statistics on African obesity because it divides extremely well. There's a big gap. There's a bunch of countries that have very low obesity rates and then a a few countries that have very high obesity rates. And the high obesity is basically South Africa and the, and the Mediterranean shoreline. Those are the countries with obesity. The rest of the middle don't have it. And it's also the way glyphosate divides up as well. They don't use, they use much less glyphosate in Africa than they do here. But South Africa is an exception. They, they, they early on, they introduced glyphosate resistant corn, maize. And so that's a big crop that they have. And they use a lot of glyphosate in South Africa and they have, an obesity problem there, along with diabetes, all the things that go with it, heart disease. So we, you know, we have it in space in this country. We're so sick and it's just really sad to look around and see. I'm, you know, I wish people could know what it was like when I was a child, because there are people around all the time today that you see that you don't blink twice about that. We would have gawked over just because they were so big back then. You wouldn't see people like that. Now they're normal, practically normal. I mean, it's just quite interesting how we adjust Autism. Oh, yeah, of course, you know, lots of kids have autism. That's not a problem somehow because it's acknowledged as this is just the way it is. Right. We can't seem to get past that, you know. (laughs) Right. Or like food allergies or sensitivities. Now it's just normal. It's crazy with the peanut allergies. You know, kids can't take a peanut butter sandwich to school because the kid next door is going to die from from just breathing the peanut butter that's in their sandwich. Right. And that's why that's why all the airlines, they switched over from peanuts to grains. And I mean, ironically, uh, but, you know, just playing devil's advocate, how how do we know that it's just not that we're eating too many processed foods that have carbohydrates in the seed oils that make people um, eat more foods and, you know, cause their insulin to not really understand that we need to stop eating. And instead, it's just causing more insulin resistance. How do we know that it's specifically the glyphosate in those products that are causing it. We don't know that for sure, but we do get a lot of contradictory studies where people are looking at the role of fats and they'll use omega-6 fats. And one study will find that they're they're fine. Another study will find that they're terrible. And and we're getting all these inconsistent results. My suspicion is that that's because they're not looking at the levels of glyphosate in the fats that they're exposing the animals to. Um, I think that the processed food is a problem. I will not deny that. And I, and I don't, uh, I think in particular, you lose a lot of the really interesting molecules that are in the plants. I, I really believe in eating a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables and even lightly cooked or raw f- vegetables, eating a salad every day. I really believe in that. The vegetables have wonderful molecules in them, the polyphenols, the flavonoids, the, the terpenoids, you know, these are complicated molecules. They actually come out of the shikimate pathway, which is the pathway that glyphosate famously disrupts. So when you, when the plants are exposed to glyphosate, they produce less of these miracle molecules, actually, that are really, really good for your mitochondria. They, they handle the oxidative stress. I mean, they're very, very important as a health benefit. And when you take those uh, foods, irrespective of the glyphosate, and you turn them into basically chemicals, you've got pure sugar and pure flour and salt and oil, right? Vegetable oil extracted from nuts. And then you put those together and make, you know, soy, of course, soy, soy protein bars. I mean, you make these synthetic foods right. that are mostly chemicals, you know, and, and then you call that a food. Well, you've lost all of those valuable molecules through that processing. We have this concept of, you know, fats and carbs and, and, and um, protein, <laughs> protein, fats and carbs. It's the three basic sources of food for energy. But we're missing out on all of those really special molecules that are not fats, not not carbs, and not proteins. You know, we're missing them when we when we eat only these processed foods. I focus on a meat based diet as an elimination diet to kind of figure out what are some of the root causes for a lot of my clients in my community. But with that said, one of the reasons I know there's a lot of people that say we shouldn't be eating plants because of the anti-nutrients like oxalates, lectins, phytates. And there's truth in that too, but it doesn't affect everyone where I, when I was doing the research on glyphosate and looking into your information as well, the part that for me made it even 
a further reason not to touch as many plants, especially if you have autoimmune and you're unwell is because a lot of the um, the places where they have the organic plants are also next to the, you know, the plants that are GMO that are using the glyphosate, and then it travels in the air and it travels in the water. And so I think it's almost impossible for the organic plants not to get some sort of exposure to these GMO or glyphosate, you know, sprayed toxins. And so it makes it easier that if you then, if we know that it's kind of everywhere and it's pervasive, it's being sprayed in our neighbor's yards. If we don't eat some of those plants, then we won't get affected as much by the glyphosate that may be also in plants. And so therefore, if you just eat meat, then maybe that reduces some of your exposure. And then on top of that, even if you eat some of, let's say, the grain fed cows, um, the fact that there was this one study that I saw that said, if you have sufficient, I think, um, aromatic amino acids, you may be able to uh, block some of the antimicrobial effects of um, of glyphosate. If we eat sufficient meat, and then we do get exposed to some of the glyphosate, will we be protected because of those am- aromatic amino acids? Well, I do think it's a good idea to eat a lot of foods that have aromatic amino acids um, to buffer them against the, the loss because of the glyphosate exposure, because you're in, as you know, the gut microbes produce aromatic amino acids yeah. for the host. Our cells are incompetent. They can't make those, those important molecules. And those are, you know, the co- part of the coding, the, the basic building blocks of proteins, but they're also precursors to an incredible number of important biologically active molecules. And I talk about that in my book, but the, so the pathway that makes aromatics is blocked by glyphosate. It's used in many uh, microbes in our gut to make them for the host. Those microbes get affected because they're, they're basically getting killed because they can't make them. They're essential for them as well. And then we get an imbalance in the gut microbiome. We get all this inflammation and, and the immune cells come in and we get a, a lot of trouble with gut um, gut dysbiosis, gut damage, you know, celiac disease, um, uh, Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel, all these different irrita- irritable bowel disease, acid reflux. There's a whole bunch of gut problems that we suffer from today that I think are directly tied to the chronic exposure uh, of our gut microbes to glyphosate. Right. And the aromatics are precursors for serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, um, melanin, the skin tanning agent, uh, epinephrine. So all of these um, really important hormones and the, and the protection from the sun, all of those things come out of that chicken, also thyroid hormones. So all of them come out mm-hmm. of that chicken mate pathway. All of them are going to be uh, insufficient in the context of life as a chronically poisoning our gut microbes. So certainly you want to try to, even, you know, people are taking a lot of aminos as supplements these days, mm-hmm. which I find interesting. You can get sort of a complex of aminos in general or specific amino acids. Glycine, of course, is a big one because that's the one that glyphosate is really messing up um, in in the in the proteins. So uh, you know, people. I, I think it's ironic. People are taking individual amino acids. It's like your food already digested. We should be able to eat proteins, including you know pre- wheat protein and casein and gluten. They're both very problematic for so many people, yeah. and they have a lot of proline. And proline is difficult to break down. And um, the enzymes that the microbes in the gut have that help you break down the uh, proteins that contain a lot of proline are disrupted by glyphosate, and that, so that those uh, those proteins don't get broken down, they stick around, and then they cause autoimmune disease by virtue of being a foreign protein. So we're getting a lot of these autoimmune diseases through molecular mimicry because of uh, proteins that we're eating that are not getting properly digested. Uh, I think that's all caused by glyphosate too. And then we're taking all these amino acids because we're essentially eating our food already digested, you know, because we can't break it down because we get then a deficiency of amino acids at the same time, because we're not able to supply ourselves. And then those proteins get into the lower gut and that causes a lot of problems too. That causes this basic pH because the microbes in the, in the colon break down the proteins that were not broken down earlier. that should have been broken down and absorbed in the mid gut. That didn't happen because the glyphosate disrupted the microbes. And then those proteins end up intact in the lower gut. And that's where these other microbes are able to break down the proteins and fully break them down and release nitrogen, which is very basic. So you end up with um, a pH that's too high. 
in the gut and then that high ph disrupts a whole bunch of microbes that right. need to live in a lower ph and now you get a deficiency in short chain fatty acids which the microbes would have gotten for you from the fiber that you eat so the fiber doesn't get properly digested you don't have enough of these really really important short chain fatty acids there's inadequate nutrition in that regard as well so there's just a lot of things that go wrong because of glyphosate poisoning the gut microbes that's so interesting because a lot of the carnivores or a lot of the meat only dieters that I do a stool test, their short chain fatty acids look pretty good. And I wonder if it's because since they're not eating a lot of the plants that would even disrupt, you know, eating the glyphosate rich plants that may disrupt, disrupt the microbiome that would affect um, any of the short chain fatty acids are not really present. So therefore, whatever amounts they get from the meats and the butters and the, you know, the butyrate from that. Um, so then it can, even if it's smaller amounts compared to if you eat plant fibers, it's enough and there's less of the toxins coming in. So you right. can have a healthy gut microbiome. And that actually makes a lot of sense. I always thought about just the aromatic amino acids because of the shikimate pathway, but I realized it affects a lot more than that. Um, and it, I never correlated that tryptophan, you know, is a precursor to serotonin, which then would affect your sleep and and that's right. That's how you get the sleep melatonin. and the depression. depression yeah, I never thought about serotonin that. Deficiency. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why if glyphosate is so bad for us? And um, I think it's because of the, the scientists use like the LD50 rule and how human cells don't get affected. And that's why, therefore, it's safe. Can you, you know, explain yes. why we thought this was safe when it actually is not for especially our bacteria or our gut microbiome cells? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Right. And, and also for our own cells, it turns out, and of course, there's plenty of studies now that are showing that glyphosate is a, an endocrine disruptor. And that's kind of an interesting story because back when, glyph when uh, glyphosate was being studied by Monsanto, the, the, the maker of glyphosate, they're the people who own the patent, they're the ones who sell it. Um, they did studies back in the 1970s um, on animal studies, you know, and, and in vitro studies and things like that. And they made up some rules for those studies. And one thing they said was that if you test a, a chemical at a higher level, of concentration and you don't find any evidence of toxicity, you don't need to test it at any lower level than that. That's kind of the lower limit. Everything lower is fine. That was an important rule. They said another rule was if you test an animal for three months, you expose it to glyphosate for three months and you don't see any obvious problems, then that's fine. You don't have to look four months, you know, it's, it's long enough. So they defined it a time limit and they defined it, a, you know, that this rule that if you didn't see the toxicity at higher levels, well, it turns out endocrine disruptors have this famous property that they're much toxic at very low levels than they are at higher levels. And so uh, they didn't know that glyphosate was an endocrine disruptor and they were, weren't going to find out because they didn't study it at those lower levels. Right. But it was really not until Seralini, and Seralini had published his paper just before I found out about glyphosate through my, that talk that I heard. So it was really quite wonderful. I came home from that talk, and one of the first things I read was this paper by Seralini's group in France, um, where they exposed rats to low doses of glyphosate for their entire lifespan. And they monitored them all. So they went way beyond the three months. Okay. And then it was low dose. It was way below the, the, the minimum that they thought was problematic. It was actually below regulatory limits. So very uh, reasonable, expected, you know, environmental situations with this exposure. And by three months, the rats all looked fine. You really couldn't tell the difference between the exposed ones and the unexposed ones. By four months, they started to show problems. And by the end of their lifespan, they had lots of problems. The females had massive mammary tumors. The males had obvious kidney and, and liver damage. Both genders had various issues with reproductive, with the reproductive system, and they had early death. So it was very clear it was causing problems, but it took a long time right. and it was low dose. And so that was, that was 2012. That paper got retracted because of pressure from the industry and then it got republished. So it still exists as a legitimate publication in its republished form. 
And um, that opened eyes. And I think since then, and especially in the last few years, there have been many papers coming out showing glyphosate toxicity at very low levels. It's really been quite a, a watershed moment because it's taken that. Before 2012, there were no studies that looked at glyphosate at low dose because it was like, what's the point? You know, We've already shown it's not toxic at high dose. So how is it going to be toxic at low dose? So that really uh, changed the picture. So now we've got a lot of really exciting papers and even showing when you expose a pregnant uh, mouse or a pregnant rat, I think it was mice to um, low dose glyphosate, um, such that the, there was no obvious damage to the pregnant mouse. There was no obvious damage to the offspring. Right. The offspring grew up and they had pups and then they grew up and they had pups and you started to see worse and worse situations with each generation down to like the third generation. It was quite remarkable. Wow. Various uh, problems that came up in the later generations because only because of that exposure in the great, great grandmother during pregnancy. So that's another thing that's become known is that and they know how to do these studies now. They know exactly which window, you know, in during the pregnancy to, to expose them, to catch that moment when it's going to really disrupt the germline because the, uh, the female embryo makes her, uh, makes her own uh, future generation eggs very early before she even has a brain. It's quite interesting. And that's a very sensitive period. And there's a very um, strong likelihood for toxicity in the pregnant mom to show up to get to the embryo and cause memory of this toxic situation that that uses epigenetics to modify things long term and that can last through many generations it's really quite remarkable so if i heard you correctly the if the first exposure happened let's say in your great grandmothers and you don't really get exposed from your mother you could still be affected right wow. it was just from that exposure way back when there was no more exposure they were just growing the mice in in, in the in the lab through the generations and wow. um, they got this result. So it's quite remarkable. Wow. Um, can you talk a little about the farming? So there are some people that'll say, oh, these are just mice and um, the crops are just, um, the glyphosate is sprayed just while they're harvesting, but it's actually also used at the very end. It's also in our parks and our schoolyards and everywhere. And, you know, we just talked about how, how, how long it can last in the soil. If you've done that research, so if your kid stomps on the floor, they're breathing in the glyphosate. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um, is it true that uh, at the very end of farming that the practices for these GMO products, they just sprayed at the end so that the pro uh, the crops will dry like a week faster so that they can, you know, push it to market? Yeah, so actually that's the non-GMO crops, which is really quite interesting because people oh, okay. think, oh, I'm buying GMO, oh. I'm buying non-GMO, that's safe. <laughs> that's what they're thinking, right? Oh, wow. As long as I look for that non-GMO label, I'm okay. That's not true. And in fact, the highest levels are showing up on non-GMO crops that are sprayed routinely right before harvest to kill them. So if it's GMO, it's got the protection, so you can't use it as in that way. Wow, okay. But, um, so yeah, I mean, it's an interesting... Um, point to make that it's the non-GMO crops that are sometimes the most dangerous. And in fact, a friend of mine, Tony Mitra, has been harassing his government in Canada for many years to get them to test different foods for glyphosate. Our government doesn't bother to test because it's perfectly safe. We know it's in there. We don't care. That's their attitude. Sure. He got Canada to do a big study where they tested thousands of different food samples for glyphosate, including Canadian grown foods, as well as imports from the U.S., from Europe, from Mexico. And they and, they, and he published a book called Poison Foods of North America based on their findings. It was quite interesting because he can they they consistently found much higher levels of glyphosate in food sourced from Canada or the United States compared to Europe. And interestingly, Mexico came up pretty much aligned with Europe. Mm. So if in doubt, by Mexican, which is kind of funny because we always it's think ironic. Mexican. Yeah. Yes. yes. So. Um, U.S. and Canada are very fond of glyphosate and the levels are showing are reflecting that. And also they found the highest levels um, is consistently in uh, surprising uh, a family, which is the legumes, the chickpeas, the garbanzo beans, hummus, for example, extremely high levels of glyphosate. Those are sprayed right before harvest as a desiccant, as you said correctly. And um, the wheat is also in the oats and the barley. So you get a lot of glyphosate in oat-based uh, cookies and cereals. So like Cheerios and oatmeal right? and, uh, and uh, Oreo cookies and goldfish crackers. The goldfish crackers is probably the wheat. So wheat, oats, um, and, these, and then these beans, these peas and beans, 
those are the highest levels in the Canadian products. And, um, and then, for example, honey, there's been several papers on honey, uh, finding glyphosate in almost all the honey that you can test. But there was a, a paper that did a lot of uh, honey samples from various places, uh, certainly across the Americas, and even maybe Europe too, I'm not, I don't remember, but the ones in the United States clearly showed up as the highest, you know, consistently the highest levels, even in the organic honeys, they also had glyphosate, but at much lower levels. <clears throat> but the highest levels were in the American honeys, which is sad because honey is a really a healthy source of sugar, you know? Yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, there was a beekeeper that said, it's ridiculous when people say that my honey is a hundred percent organic because you can't dictate where the you can't bees keep your bees away from those. Don't go over there. They've been sprayed. Right, exactly. And of course, I think the bee colony collapse syndrome, I think glyphosate is a major player, probably the most important player in bee colony collapse syndrome. We've got the insecticides that are also contributing. Yeah. And a lot of people are pointing the finger at them correctly. So probably, but glyphosate disrupts enzymes in the liver that detoxify the chemicals that are in the insecticides. So they work synergistically. When you've got the glyphosate in the bee, then its liver can't detoxify the insecticides. Oh, interesting. And so it's a, it's a synergistic toxicity that wipes out the bees. And I think if you got rid of the glyphosate, you'd see a, a, a pretty big improvement on the bee situation, which is devastating because we're going to have a huge problem with many crops when we don't have bees to, to pollinate them. If you were to eat plants, then what are your recommendations? So you just said that garbanzo beans, which is a, um, you know, like some of the legumes, the wheats, the oats, some of those are revered as the best fibrous um, food. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's quite interesting that people are so concerned about, and I guess people have learned you need to eat fiber and that will help you to get the short chain fatty acids, which are right. so good for your gut because the, um, as you probably know, the colonocytes love butyrate. That's their favorite food. And butter is a super good source of butyrate. So I Thank really you. push butter. I think organic butter is one of the best things. In fact, when we cook with, when we use oils for cooking, we use butter or mm. organic lard. Those are our two favorite oils, um, which is interesting because both of them, of course, have cholesterol, which is what people are always trying to avoid right. by, by switching over to vegetable oils. I think the vegetable oils are definitely inferior, even in the absence of glyphosate considerations but the seed oils are, are many of them are sprayed with glyphosate right before harvest so you've got the glyphosate in the in the vegetable oils you're right probably more so than you would have in the animal base although the animals of course are eating a lot of glyphosate yes. too they have much higher limits uh, and the cows are quite oh. sick and I've, I've read um, papers about the cows in fact a very interesting paper by um, some Europeans Gosh, they found the cows were sick and they tested the glyphosate, found high levels of glyphosate in their urine. And they treated them with um, bentonite clay, uh, fulvic acid, humic acid, and sauerkraut juice, which was very interesting. The sauerkraut juice really caught my eye. Uh, and apparently that was effective. They found that it lowered the levels in their urine and improved their health. So that particular treatment reg regimen that they had figured out, I'm sure, experimentally. But the sauerkraut juice, I find that very fascinating because that's basically a, that's a fermented food. Right. And um, acetobacter is a very common microbe that shows up in fermented foods. And there are very few microbes that can metabolize glyphosate. It has a complicated CP bond that most, um, most species don't know how to break that CP bond. And so uh, it's an unusual uh, bond. And, uh, but acetobacter know how to, they have an enzyme that can break that CP bond and can, therefore can turn glyphosate into a nutrient source mm -hmm. of, of, um, of both energy and, and phosphorus and nitrogen. So it becomes a food to them, but it also clears the glyphosate from your body. So I find that really interesting. And I picked up on that and I've been advocating either sauerkraut or any kind of fermented foods and um, apple cider vinegar in particular. Um, because that's also got acetobacter. So oh, that's the recommendation that I have to people is to eat fermented foods for the reason that those microbes could be breaking down the glyphosate, which is the best you can do. So, the, you know, other things are binders. They'll, they'll uh, bind to the glyphosate and take it out through the feces, but then it's still there. It's not in your body. It's now in, in the feces. And of course, the cows probably have lots of glyphosate in their manure. And that's a problem. Manure is such a valuable thing for fertilizer, but it gets ruined by the diet that yeah. these CAFO cows consume. Yeah, so that's and that I agree with. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's and, and it makes sense. So the bentonite clay and the fulvic acid, all of those will be binders and it'll help to remove some of the toxins. And then, like you said, with that um, specific um, strain, that makes a lot of sense and why they would give that support to then 
help the animals. If I were to pick a, like, what's the worst poison of having organic plants that may be near um, glyphosate sprayed crops or having grain fed, which ate the crops, um, the logic for me was always, well, if they had the, if the animals have an abundance of the aromatic amino acids, maybe they're a little bit safer than eating. I, I don't know if you've done any. But there is a level of indirect. I mean, I feel like if you're eating a crop that was sprayed with glyphosate right before harvest, you're pretty much asking for trouble, right? <laughs> Whereas if you, the cow is eating a lot of glyphosate, but most of it does go out. I mean, Monsanto has said that we don't, we, it does accumulate in the tissues. That's something they lied about because they know it. They actually found it experimentally. But in small amounts, most of it comes in and goes out through the urine, through the feces. So um, if you're eating an animal, then that's another that's a filter that should get rid of a lot of it, I would think. So I would think in general, uh, a strict animal based diet, everything else being equal, would have lower glyphosate exposure than a plant based diet. Most of the animal based advocates are arguing about the anti nutrients, but there, this is the I think the bigger issue, right? It's even if you eat organic plants, if they're next to the glyphosate, or if we are exposed by our neighbors spraying the Roundup in their lawn, and it's also in our schools and our parks. And um, I put a graphic in our um, in my book about you know where they spray it everywhere in the cities that have the most glyphosate usage, and um, I think that's a bigger concern than some of the anti nutrients that may be affecting only some people. This mm-hmm. affects everybody and it's in our waters and the more, more exposure you get, you know, the less optimal health you will have. Um, and I know in your book, you mentioned how glyphosate affects our brain and our neurotransmitters. So can you talk a little bit about, do you think that some of this glyphosate is affecting our mental health? That's skyrocketing Absolutely. right now. <laughs> Absolutely. I think all of those diseases that are going up dramatically in step with glyphosate are caused by glyphosate. And I have to always say glyphosate is not the only cause. We had autism before yes. glyphosate. Right. So people say, how could it be glyphosate? Because we had autism before. I don't think that denies it at all because yeah. there's plenty of different things that cause the same disease. You know, Alzheimer's is another one, which is really scary to me because that's been dramatically rising. just like autism, really rising exponentially and coming in younger and younger ages over over time. And I think glyphosate is a major player in Alzheimer's disease as well. So that's really, and also Parkinson's, you know, there's studies that show that the farmers um, using glyphosate have increased risk to Parkinson's disease. And even there was a study on worms that was more than one, I think, but one in particular I'm remembering on worms that was quite interesting. I wrote about it in my book. Um, where they they these earthworms and they had them and they they grew uh, crops in, in these containers with the, with the worms in the soil, and then they sprayed some of them with glyphosate and they were thinking that because they were killing those crops, there'd be a lot of uh, dead plant material that would bring those worms to the surface because they'd want to eat it. Sure. They were anticipating that, and compared to the ones that didn't have the glyphosate, but it turned out the exact opposite. And what what I think they found was that glyphosate was paralyzing those worms so they couldn't make it to the surface. It was quite, quite interesting that they, um, they pretty much stopped going to the surface after a certain amount of time because they got so poisoned that they couldn't right. move. And there was another study that showed specifically a Parkinsonian like symptom in worms <laughs> that were exposed. I think they were, I forget what kind of, I don't think they were earthworms, maybe roundworms, another kind of worm that was exposed to glyphosate and got uh, Parkinson's like symptoms, um, which again is a sort of neurological damage of the, uh, substantial nigra of the brainstem nuclei. So I think the glyphosate, um, it shows, it's been shown in multiple studies that it ex, uh, causes glutamate, glutamate excitotoxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's um, something that's been, uh, you know, various so groups have shown that. And so uh, that's a, a serious, that's actually very much connected to uh, autism as well, glutamate excitotoxicity. It means that it in- increases the, um, the glutamate receptor activity which causes glutamate uptake into the cell, which then causes this exciting, you know, excitatory response that causes oxidative damage through various, um, you know, oxidizing agents that get expressed in response to that glutamate signal. Do you, and you also think that this affects mood disorders, right? So um, I know we just talked about the serotonin effect, but it, is there a, other ways that um, the glyphosate can affect you know, depression and anxiety. Yes. Well, of course, you know, all of those are hormones, serotonin and 
And melatonin is another one that's, that's of course, very important for sleep. Um, and melatonin, I believe melatonin is crucial for supplying sulfate to the brain mm. so that it can clear garbage during sleep. It's quite interesting that one of the really important things that sleep does is to allow your neurons to recycle their waste materials. And so um, they need sulfate to do that. And melatonin is produced in the pineal gland in response to sunlight. And then it's packaged up with a sulfate. Each melatonin molecule gets stuck onto a sulfate and the two of them get sent out together into the cerebral spinal fluid at night while you sleep. And so the melatonin is actually delivering sulfate to the neurons, which it needs in order to digest, in order to break down the debris. It's quite interesting. Interesting. And the uh, autistic kids have a huge problem with sulfate. And I talked about that a lot in my book. I think the sulfate dysfunction, you know, the dis, uh, disruption of the sulfate system is the way I should say it uh, in the body is a major driver behind many of these neurodegenerative diseases and neurological diseases and the mood disorders. I think it's, it's all um, connected to this sulfate problem. What about um, glyphosate and hormones? You mentioned um, thyroid gets affected. You know, the hypothyroid is so common. People think that you need a lot of carbohydrates for thyroid health. But I mean, what have you seen in terms of glyphosate with um, thyroid issues? Absolutely. And that's, again, been shown in studies. And that's been shown in studies with uh, pregnant uh, rats where you expose the rat to glyphosate during pregnancy. And then you look at the offspring and you can see that it's disrupted the thyroid system, the thyroid hormone in the offspring. Um, and uh, of course, this thyroid hormone, it comes out of the shikimate pathway. So you're going to have a deficiency in the hormone right there. And, and, and thyroid deficiency in the mother is linked to a fourfold increased risk of autism in the child. That's in humans. So if a mother has thyroid deficiency, she has a much greater increased risk of producing an autistic child. So wow, uh, yes, I never I think, knew that. What? Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh that's very worrisome. Wait, um, why is that? Why is that the risk of um having thyroid imbalances uh relate to uh, I'm missing the line. Well, well, yeah, exactly how that works, right? It's it's <laughs> it's complicated. I'm not sure I have the answer. I think okay. I'm fussed with the answer here and there, but I'm not sure what the what the exact that's a hard one to link up, actually, I think. But of course, thyroid is uh, does a lot with uh, right. metabolism. Right. And uh, so when you have thyroid deficiency, you have a, a mitochondrial deficiency as well. Right. And so okay. that's connected to autism. So that could be a pathway by which it could happen. Yeah, and a lot of the hormones in play. So it I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of different ways that it can happen. Um, in your book, you talk about vitamin A toxicity. And I love that you brought it up because um, I've been talking about that recently. There's a lot of carnivores that eat a probably a bit too much of liver, which has a lot of vitamin A. But in your book, you mentioned vitamin A toxicity and the risk of, um, I guess, damage to an unborn baby. Can you talk a little bit about um, about that? And if it's if we know that there is a risk of vitamin A toxicity, why are why is our government adding Vitamin vitamin all of our foods. (laughs) That's so confusing, isn't it? And of course, I guess there's an association between blindness, right? And vitamin A deficiency. And they're creating this crazy uh, genetic crop. It's a uh, vitamin A uh, soy, I think, a soy that makes vitamin A. Is that right? I forgot. Um, I I know that they add vitamin A to a lot of foods. So it's required by Mm. law to add it to milk. Um, A lot of the dairies, it's added to a lot of our wheats. Um, And now they recently passed a law where um, these food manufacturers no longer have to include the vitamin A amounts in the, um, the nutritional facts. So it's interesting. Oh, they've actually backed off on it. Is that right? So yeah, they, they used to uh, require that vitamin A, uh, the amounts on the label have to be uh, noted and they just removed it. So now newer packagings do not list the level of vitamin A. Interesting. But if we know that's really strange, they still require it, but they don't require that you say how much is in there. Yes. But that's disturbing. Right. And if we know that we can get toxic from vitamin A, I would think that's a one that we'd want to measure, but now they're right. removing it from the packages. So there's, it's not required on the labels. That's um, interesting. That yeah. seems wrong. Well, uh, so that, I mean, vitamin A is tricky. And in fact, it's extremely important in development and it needs to yes. be, you know, it's expressed and then it's cleared and then it's expressed and it's cleared and it sort of changes the behavior of how the cells either migrate or, or proliferate or 
differentiate into particular things. I mean, all of that is orchestrated by this complex um, scene that takes place. It's miraculous during development where there's critical timing issues as far as when to squirt that vitamin A in there and then to get rid of it, you know, because now you've got to go on to the next stage. and want to make it differentiate because I think the vitamin A promotes proliferation. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you say, okay, we got enough, we got enough cells here. We now need to differentiate into the thing we're going to become. And, uh, and it can get totally messed up if that vitamin A doesn't get cleared. And so there, so I, I mentioned glyphosate disrupting enzymes that metabolize toxics like the insecticides. Those are, there's a whole class of enzymes called cytochrome P450 enzymes, and they're super, super important for many things. One of them is to activate vitamin D. So we've got a massive vitamin D deficiency, I think, because of that. And one of them, as I mentioned, is to uh, uh, clear toxic exposures. Many of these fat-soluble toxins uh, get cleared by these cytochrome P450 enzymes. But they also, there's cytochrome P450 enzymes in the liver that are critical for removing vitamin A, for breaking it down. And so when those are broken, vitamin A goes down other pathways and becomes toxic. So I think it's a problem of vitamin A plus glyphosate. And this is what there was a paper by Carrasco was the lead author on a paper, probably multiple papers, actually, um, that talked about uh, teratogenicity, glyphosate causing defects, you know, genetic defects in uh, in development in the embryo. And um, and he linked it to vitamin A toxicity and he blamed it on glyphosate suppressing uh, the breakdown of vitamin A. So there's too much. So you can't get it right when you have a problem with the enzymes that break it down, that's the problem. So you can't, you, you either have too little or you have too much because you can't control the timing in the right way. Right. Right. And that's where I think maybe for certain individuals that eat a meat-based diet that then eat a lot of liver, if they've been exposed to that damage in the P450 that you mentioned, they might not be able to clear the excess vitamin A or store it properly in their liver. And then it could actually cause the liver to get inundated. And it's just a higher risk because then you're, you have too much vitamin A compared to the other fat soluble vitamins. And it just, I've just seen a lot of people not do so well eating too much liver. And I think that's interesting. And of course, liver is going to have a lot of toxic chemicals too, because it's a, it's famous for its ability to clear toxic chemicals. So it really grabs them out as trying to keep them from getting into the general circulation. It's very good at that. So if you, if your animal that made your liver is exposed to a lot of toxic chemicals, you are going to be also, I think liver is a fantastic food. It's so nutritious. It has so many different nutrients in it that are important for health. But it's a big but because if the animal is being exposed to all these chemicals, that liver that you eat is going to have those chemicals in it. So you have to have a very healthy, you have to have your own chicken, beat it organic in order to be able to eat chicken livers, you know. So uh, I I, I really enjoyed uh, organic chicken livers, which we can get sometimes at Whole Foods. So I think livers are very healthy food. Um, But again, in the context of the problems, it's very interesting. I was looking at the fats and I think you might find this interesting because a lot of people say omega-6 fats are really bad, right? It is a whole, I mean, Mercola is a big one for that. He has a whole book on it. Omega-6 fats are bad. That's very, very interesting. And and this is, as you probably know, if you try to figure out what happens to omega-6 fats in in metabolism, it gets really, really complicated because there's all these different enzymes that turn them into different, molecules that have various names and um and some of those molecules are um inflammatory they could cause an inflammatory response and so i actually dug around long enough to start to get a sense of what's going on if you look at arachidonic acid which is the basic omega-6 fat and arachidonic acid gets processed by cytochrome p450 enzymes and turned into an endogenous cannabinoid it's a natural cannabinoid produced by the human body. And we have had so many people getting a success with treating with cannabinoids to try to deal with all their problems, their pain, right. and their depression. I suspect that because of that blockage by glyphosate of the ability of converting arachidonic acid into this endogenous cannabinoid, the arachidonic acid gets diverted into other pathways with the mm-hmm. COX enzymes and the LOX enzymes. Lipoxygenase is a big one. And lipoxygenase converts um, arachidonic acid into leukotrienes and leukotrienes are incredibly inflammatory. So you're going to get an inflammatory liver instead of getting this endogenous cannabinoid, which is basically saying, Hey guys, everything's great. We're really good. So I feel like there are these, 
I think vitamin D is an example of that too. It's so interesting because you have these super nutrients like um, and cannabinoids I would consider to be sort of super nutrients that um, are produced by enzymes that are super critical for lots of other things. Sure. So I feel like the body actually uses those signaling molecules, the vitamin D and the cannabinoid to, as an indicator that the cytochrome P450 enzymes are healthy. So when you can't produce those things, that's an indicator that they're not healthy, Right. in which case you've got to make a whole different metabolic policy around the fact that you don't have those cyp enzymes. And so that causes all this inflammation and stuff that we have so much trouble with uh, because of the body's recognition that cyp enzymes are broken because yeah. it can't make those molecules. And that, I mean, it makes sense what you're saying. I mean, I, I think our body just tries to, with whatever it has, m- m- make the best decisions. And sometimes we don't have the ideal situation, just like when um, estrogen br- breaks down into certain pathways as well. Right. right? So it sounds like this is a very similar type of thing. And I remember in nutritional therapy school, they would say that certain um, omega-6s, you know, they can turn um, pro-inflammatory. And so right. um, I didn't touch upon it as much as you just mentioned. And that is very interesting. And things get broken at the very cellular or, uh, you know, granular level, then things can start breaking down and your body will just try to do what it can. And so it really then matters what we put in our bodies. And I think that's where the food is so important and talking about, you know, where we are sourcing these foods. It's not just about organics. When I was doing organic research, a lot of our organic foods are, um, especially the fruits um, are brought in from other countries Mm -hmm. and we don't even know if they're being mandated properly. Right. So it's just, and so I'm sure there's some fraud in that, which is really scary. You think if I'm spending the extra money to get organic, I'm getting a good product and you can't guarantee that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so so what, what do you think is a solution then? Um, Everything organic. Yeah, absolutely. We're very uh, rigid about it in my family. We, we won't buy it if we can't find it organic. And, um, and then also high sulfur foods. I really, as I said, I focused on sulfur um, and you need to straighten up the sulfate system. A lot of people have yeah. sulfur sensitivities. I was going to just think, say that. Yeah. And that's because of glyphosate, because mm. the glyph- it's quite interesting. Glyphosate disrupts the enzymes that convert inorganic sulfur into organic sulfur in the form of the sulfur containing amino acids like methionine right. and um, cysteine. Those are super important, as you know, for um, glutathione. So glutathione deficiency is a very common problem with the autistic kids. And there's a direct relationship to glyphosate because glyphosate uh, dis- disrupts the supply of methionine. And, um, and it also potentially messes up glutathione because it's glycine there too that it's probably also messing up so but it's been shown experimentally that it reduces the amount of glutathione in the liver and it changes glutathione to be highly oxidized it isn't able to bring it back to the reduced form which is the form that actually works as an antioxidant and that's because the enzymes that do that are disrupted by glyphosate so you get a really big mess with uh, insufficient antioxidant capacity in part because of insufficient glutathione in the liver and um, so eating sulfur containing foods is important to me as long as you don't have this problem. What happens actually when you can't uh, make the, uh, it, turn the inorganic sulfur into organic sulfur is that you turn it into sulfite and hydrogen sulfide gas. And those are both troublesome. So you get the bloating from the gas, but the right. gas can also float up to the brain and cause brain fog, hydrogen sulfide gas. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. There's um, there's a whole group of people that do low sulfur diets and the the and I get it because it makes you feel better. But the caveat should always be or the disclaimer should always be you can't do it long term. Otherwise, you're going to reduce the risk of producing more glutathione and helping right. you clear and the sulfate, which, as I said, is so important. It's, yeah. it's really interesting biology, the biochemistry of maintaining the, the cycle between sulfate and uh, hydrogen sulfide gas is uh, oxidizing and reducing sulfur back and forth as a um, which all along the way, the body makes use of those products in different complicated ways to make metabolism work. And so uh, the sulfate and the sulfate is transported by those aromatic um, uh, amino acids that are blocked. So you, you end up with a deficiency in this, in the transport of sulfate from the gut to other parts of the body, including the brain. And that's part of the problem there too, is that you don't have those aromatics. So you can't transport as much sulfate, but even the enzyme that hooks the sulfate on, those are the, all many enzymes in the sulfate pathway are disrupted by glyphosate. It's quite interesting. And so, um, so you end up with a sulfur deficiency problem because you start 
trying to do a low sulfur diet. I do recommend Epsom salts. And I do wonder whether people who have sulfur sensitivities also have sensitivities to Epsom salts. And I don't know whether you have the answer to that. I would hope not just because it's not directly through the gut. You know, you're still soaking in Epsom salts, which is magnesium sulfate. There are some people that are sensitive. So um, there was like a magnesium spray I recommended, and I think it used some type of sulfur ingredient. So then um, what I ended up recommending is there's some type of I forget what salt it is, but um, it's a form of creating the magnesium spray through some type of Epsom salt that doesn't have as much of the sulfur and right. then people can tolerate, but it's still, you know, a bandaid in a sense, right? You're just removing some of the sulfur exposure, um, but. Right. But you want the sulfate. That's the I know. Thing. That's why I like Epsom salts because I know the magnesium people usually think of Epsom salts as a source of magnesium, but they're also right. a source of sulfate. Yes. And so it can help it with the sulfate deficiency problem. And I, I, so I tend to just work with my clients to say, okay, you can't tolerate anything related to sulfur fine Um, for a temporary bit. Let's just work on the gut. Maybe you can strengthen your gut and then you can tolerate more sulfur. And then we slowly try to introduce because people will say, I can't eat eggs because of the sulfur. And right. I know. I've heard that. I got that immediately when I was talking about sulfur and how important I would get email from people. I can't eat sulfur. I, I, I remember I was, oh my God, I didn't realize. And then I had to look into that. Yeah, I was going to say something else and I forgot. Oh, oxalate. I was wondering whether the people who have sulfur sensitivities, whether they often also have oxalate problems. I haven't seen a one-to-one correlation. Um, there are some people that are just seem to be really sensitive to oxalates, and I haven't seen that they would also be sensitive to eggs and other sulfur-rich foods. So I wouldn't say that I've seen a, yes, I it's common, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. bet you there may be some. I mean, there's some people that are just sensitive to everything where their immune system is in a heightened response because something in their past triggered their immune system to now be in a heightened state and they cannot tolerate anything. And it's just, it's so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate. Yes. I want the other to thing ask- I recommend is sunlight. I want to say that. Sunlight. Oh yeah. I'm big on sunlight uh, yeah, to the skin and to the eyes. And I actually think it's really bad to put sunglasses on a two-year-old. I think that's a really bad idea. Yeah. And I mean, we need, um, sunlight to help, you know, break down cholesterol and produce more vitamin D. And it's just good for so many reasons to be outside. And right. Um, it actually triggers the synthesis of cholesterol sulfate in the skin in oh, addition okay. to vitamin D sulfate. And it is a, a way to distribute sulfate throughout the body. But of course, glyphosate's disrupting those enzymes and glyphosate's also disrupting melanin, which is a skin tanning agent. So that makes you more sensitive to sunlight as far as getting UV exposure and ending up with the skin cancer. So glyphosate makes the sun risky. <laughs> so you got to get rid of the glyphosate and then you can enjoy the sun. So it's all, it's all tied to the glyphosate. There's so many things that are problematic because of the glyphosate. And that includes the eyes as well. I mean, the glyphosate is messing up in the eyes, what uh, is in the eyes to protect them from sun damage. And the eyes actually depend upon the sun to stay healthy. But again, if you've got those enzymes disrupted by glyphosate, you end up with um, um, oxidative damage to the eyes from the sun because the enzymes aren't working. It's really a huge problem everywhere that the enzymes that would turn the uh, the source into something useful for you. Um, but if they don't work, you get oxidative damage. That's, yeah, it's that's interesting. a very big problem. It's interesting. I mean, so it just goes back to if we just stick to real foods and the way that nature intended, uh, right. we won't have these issues of the pathway that can be adverse to us. Instead, it'll go back to being beneficial. Have you seen a timeframe where people just remove all things glyphosate in their life as much as they can, that they start improving their health. Lots and lots of cases. I've gotten so many email. I've, I get email from someone who says, I've got this problem. I think maybe glyphosate's causing it and I'll recommend some things, you know, like what I just said. Mm-hmm. And then they come back a year later and say, my God, it's just unbelievable how much that helped me. I have a lot of cases like that. Uh, there was one with his wife. She had um, interstitial cystitis, I think it was. Yes. And he, and he said, he thought, wondered, he, she had a terrible problem, couldn't fix it. He wondered if it was glyphosate. I said, I suspected it could be. Um, she went on an organic diet and, and then a year later he got back to me, totally fixed her problem. Then he wrote a whole article on the web. And then someone else sent me email said, Oh, I saw his article. It's so fantastic. I want to get a hold of him. Can you give me his email address? Cause I want to tell him how wonderful it was that it fixed my problem too. So I think there's a lot of people 
And there was, you know, I mean, there are people, it's also the other way where someone, some painful things where the mother shared with me that she had grown her own tomatoes in her garden while she was pregnant and she uh, used glyphosate to control the weeds growing along the tomatoes. And then she ate a lot of those tomatoes. And then she had an autistic child from that pregnancy. She was, it was very painful for her to share that with me. Right. What are your thoughts on Bayer uh, buying out Monsanto? You know, obviously a pharmaceutical, I know this is probably highly controversial. I'm just curious your thoughts. And Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think it's a pattern, right? The chemical industry, the agrochemical yes. industry and the uh, pharmaceutical industry are one and the same. Mm-hmm. And it's a great system for them. I really think so. I think they know that as long as we keep the population poisoned, they're going to be very sick and then they'll be, they'll be, They'll have to buy all of our drugs in order to keep themselves afloat and we'll make tons of money both ways. So that what's not to like about that? I mean, I think we are so centered on making money at the expense of human lives. And I find that horrendous. I find it horrible. I just can't understand how people can sleep at night knowing that they're causing so much pain. This is something that really puzzles me, actually. No amount of money is worth it to know that you're causing so much pain in all of these human beings around the world. And yet these people seem quite content to do it and to hide even, you know, to, to conceal what's happening. So it's, it's very sad. I, I, I hope that we will have a, a, a massive awakening when people will finally realize that this is just not the right solution. We need to overhaul our agriculture in a big way. And it's not just organic, you know, renewable, sustainable, all those good words where people work towards fixing the soil. Um, and, um, and then once you fix the soil, you actually fix a lot of other things as well. So I think um, we need to go back to the small organic farm. People need to eat whole foods. That's very important. Stay away from the processed foods. And, um, and then organic. Organic whole foods, I think, takes you a huge way towards a healthy lifestyle. And you will find... The money you spend extra on the organic food, you're going to get back in spades when you don't get cancer, your right. child doesn't get autism. I mean, that is such a huge expense, let alone the pain of it all, that it's totally worth it to buy organic. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, my kids, they eat plants, not, I mean, I guess they eat mostly fruits, but then sometimes they'll have some, you know, like leafy greens, but we only buy organic. So if it's not in season because they're expensive, then, um, then we don't buy the, um, like we don't buy strawberries unless it's like May through, I think September, because that's when they're more affordable when they're organic and otherwise we're not getting them. And I think (coughs) that's the way we're supposed to be eating them. Um, they weren't supposed to to be around all the time. Um, I know that glyphosate is getting, you know, Monsanto glyphosate, uh, roundup, they're getting, a bad rep finally in the press and stuff, but there's other products like atrazine and stuff. Does it make sense that there's other products out there or, I mean, do they all kind of function the same? They're very different in terms of their mechanisms of toxicity, but atrazine is probably, you know, people would say, most people would say it's more toxic than glyphosate. It's very toxic. Um, I, I, I think all the herbicides are very toxic in different ways. And I fear that we may finally, it will be great. We'll finally get the message. Glyphosate is toxic. We have to get rid of it. And they'll just switch over to 2,4-D or dicamba or atrazine or glufosinate, and they're all bad. Yeah. When I did research for my book, atrazine was, um, I think atrazine was used right after um, glyphosate. So Mm -hmm. um, they're switching from glyphosate to other things. And they've got this also glyphosate plus, right? So glyphosate plus dicamba in the Midwest. I think on the soy crops and it's causing a huge problem. There's lots of lawsuits going on because you have to buy your soybeans that have two GMOs in them, one for glyphosate and one for dicamba. And then you buy this product that has both of those in there because the glyphosate is not clearing all the weeds or certain weeds that have developed resistance. And that's been a big problem. That's going to probably derail the industry as well because they have to use more and more glyphosate to kill the plant because it's getting really resistant to glyphosate. Yes. At, and they reach a point when they can't kill the plant with glyphosate. Now they've got to bring something else in. And then the neighbor gets mad because the, um, the dicamba goes to the neighbor's yard and kills their right. crop because they don't have that dicamba resistance. You have to buy a crop with dicamba resistance defensively, even though you don't plan to use dicamba. That so is, that's really awful. That is so scary. I think I, I always recommend if people want to eat plants, they should just grow their own naturally as even if the plants are really small and little, but <laughs> probably the best way. Um, yeah. So where can people find your book? I mean, this book is really good. It's not as 
super sciencey so the layperson can understand it. I think it's really good. Uh, where can people find this and where can people find you? Yeah, so I have a, a webpage, stephaniesanif.net, where you can find, I have some stuff posted there about my uh, my work. And uh, and then the book is available on multiple booksellers, uh, including in the UK, the US. Um, Amazon, of course, sells it. That would be. And then, of course, the books, uh, Chelsea Green, the publisher, also offers a book for sale. So you can you can get it from multiple sites on the web. Well, thank you so much for this discussion. Um, I first got introduced to GMOs because I took the trek from Los Angeles to Berkeley and there's this big factory farm in that area. And I was just thinking this cannot be right. And um, I started looking into GMOs back then and that was early 2000s. And That's so impressive. You're before me. (laughs) But everyone would say, but this is how we're going to feed the world. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of let it go. But in intrinsically, I felt like something was wrong. And then my husband always says, I've come full circle because I've always wanted to, I always had this passion about GMOs and then it came out and now eating a meat, mostly meat diet. It's, um, it just makes sense why people are healing for some of it. It's just the, um, removal of glyphosate products in your life. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting. So thank you for this book. I think it's really good. And I think people should you know, awaken, it's not just about eating only meat. There's a lot more to it and why plant toxins is not just anti-nutrients. So thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. I hope that this conversation with Dr. Senef really opens your eyes about the dangers of certain things in our plant-based foods. I know that we want to think that plant-based foods are so healthy, but sometimes it's more than just the molecular structure of plants. Sometimes it's what we are actually doing to our plants. If you have access to farmer's markets and you trust your farmer, or you can grow your own plants and plant-based foods without using these toxins, then that's probably the best way to introduce plants. I talk about this a lot more in Carnivore Cure and make sure to pick up Dr. Senef's book, Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer's Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment by Dr. Stephanie Seneff. This book is really good in explaining what is going on with glyphosate and all the disease and all these other areas that are being affected by glyphosate. You can also find her graphics that she talks about in my book in chapter five. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.